The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, and the 14th verse, the 14th verse in the 17th chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for thou art my prayers. I want to consider that with you in connection with the following verse, the 15th verse, which reads like this, Behold, they say unto me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. Now, I suggest that it's right that we should consider this uh, 14th verse together with the 15th, because it seems to me that in these uh, two verses taken together, the apostle brings to an end, uh, to a conclusion, the case that he has been stating in this chapter, and especially from the fifth verse. We have considered together and we have seen repeatedly that uh, the uh, prophet is here addressing his fellow countrymen with an unusual sense of urgency. The situation had been going from bad to worse for some time, but at last it really has become critical. And uh, the burden of his message is that unless these people do uh, realize the situation and repent and return uh, to the Lord, uh, nothing can save them uh, from a horrible and uh, calamitous disaster. So he comes to them, and as we've seen, he's pointed out to them that there are only these two possibilities, that it's got to be either cursing or blessing. He's described the two conditions, he's pleaded with them, he's reasoned with them, he's argued with them, he's put it in the form of pictures, He's uh, exhausted every conceivable method. And uh, having done so, and having shown to them the folly and the almost monstrous character of their rebellion and their refusal, it seems to me, as I understand this passage, that here at long last, the prophet, as it were, sums it all up. And he seems to say something like this to them. Well, he seems to say, it is for you to decide. But as for myself, well, my position is this. And his position is what is expressed in the 14th verse. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall, for thou art my praise. Then, as for these other people, their attitude is not that. Their attitude is this. Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. In other words, here finally the prophet uh, again shows us the two positions. His position as a man who was in touch with God and to whom God was speaking, and these other people who are rebellious, and to reject the way and the word and the counsel of God. Now, obviously, the prophet was thinking primarily as he uttered these words 
of the then immediate position. I mean by that the calamity that was confronting uh, the, the Jews, the Israelites, his fellow countrymen. He was thinking of it primarily in terms of that. He could see it coming for certain. And he knows that uh, there is only one place of safety. He's already been saying that the there's only one sanctuary, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. And here he says, as for me, well, I'm going there. He seems almost to turn away from the people and the whole situation almost with a note of impatience. And he turns to God in this prayer and pours out his heart's desire and his longing and expresses his faith. And then, having done that, he remembers again the people. And in his prayer to God, he tells God what they're still saying, and how unjust it is, and how un unjustifiable it all is, in view of his treatment of them and his message to them. Now, that is the immediate context. But, of course, as uh, we have seen so constantly, and it is one of the most marvelous things about the Bible, Everything that happens is really a picture of our whole relationship to God. The whole story of the children of Israel is really nothing but a picture of God's dealing with mankind. That is why undoubtedly the early church, which by then had become mainly uh, Gentile rather than Jewish, that is why the early church undoubtedly was led of the Holy Spirit, to preserve the Old Testament. Now, there are people who are often surprised that Christian people should be at all interested in the Old Testament. They say, surely, as Christians, we are no longer interested in that old history. Indeed, I've met Christian people who didn't seem to understand that. They thought that Christians only need the New Testament, and they can't understand how Christians go back to the Old Testament. And especially they're often in difficulties as to how one can conceivably find the gospel in the Old Testament. Of course, that's just a betrayal of their own ignorance of these matters. Because the fact is that it's the same God overall in the Old Testament as in the New. And it is the same God of salvation whom you find in the Old Testament as in the New. That is why you see the deliverance of the children of Israel from the bondage and the captivity of Egypt is a marvelous picture and illustration of Christian salvation. The crossing of the Red Sea or the crossing of the Jordan, entering into Canaan, it's, it's all gospel. God, as it were, did it there on a national scale. He did it there in a more or less material manner, in terms of material prosperity. But it's exactly the same principle. It's precisely the same teaching. And sometimes it is therefore a great advantage to go back and to look at it in this historical and in this pictorial manner. Realizing, as I say, that the God who did that in that way to the children of Israel is the God who has done this in an infinitely bigger and more glorious manner in a spiritual sense. In and through his only Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And therefore, I want to put it to you, that in these two verses, verses 14 and 15, 
we have a very perfect representation of a believer and an unbeliever. A Christian and a non-Christian. And here we find the extraordinary contrast between those two positions. Now, I'm calling your attention to it because as I have repeated so constantly since we've begun considering this passage, this is the most vital and the most momentous question facing every one of us in this world at this moment. What is our relationship to God? Well, when we find ourselves face to face with ultimate things, when we find ourselves face to face with the offer of the gospel, with the statements of the Christian salvation, it is our response to that that really proclaims exactly where we are. Now, that means this. Would you like to know for certain whether you're a Christian or not? Our response and our reaction to the statement of the gospel decides exactly whether we're not Christians. If we agree with it, if we thank God for it, we are Christians. If we don't, if we dislike it, if we resent it, well, we're not saying anything about the gospel, but we are saying everything about ourselves. We are just proclaiming that we are not Christian because the gospel of God annihilates us and therefore we cannot be Christian. So that whenever we listen to this gospel, we are under judgment. Our whole position is being determined, it's being laid open, and there is no question at all about it. Very well then, let us look together this evening at the statement of the Christian. How can I know for certain at this moment whether I'm a Christian or not? Well, this is the language of the Christian. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For thou art my prayer. That's the Christian confession. That is the Christian stating his faith. He is confessing his belief. He is giving his testimony. He is expressing what he feels in the depth of his being and in the recesses of his heart. Now then, all I want to do tonight is to hold this before you. It's all here. And as Jeremiah was led of the Spirit of God to end his message with this final test, I feel constrained to do the same thing. And as I realize that your eternal destiny and mine depends upon this fact as to whether we are Christian or not, I am aware of the dread responsibility that lies upon me that I may put this thing as simply and as plainly and as directly as I can. Now then, the principles are all here. What are the characteristics of a Christian? What are the marks of a true believer in God in the Lord Jesus Christ? The first answer to the question is that he realizes his need of healing. He realizes his need of salvation. 
You see, this man offers up a prayer. And his prayer is a confession. His prayer is, of course, a petition, yes. But it's a, a type of petition which is a confession. You can tell exactly what a man thinks about himself by listening to what he asks for himself. For instance, when a man prays to be healed, what's he doing? He's rarely saying that he's ill, that he needs to be healed. Now, that is always the first thing about the Christian. And it must always come first. And you see at once uh, how a great deal that often masquerades and uh, presents itself as Christianity has nothing at all to do with Christianity. For instance, if you go to a man and say, now, uh, what do you think a Christian is? Uh, why do you call yourself a Christian? What's your definition of a Christian? And you'll find that so many will immediately begin by saying, well, a Christian, of course, is a man who lives a good life. That's the immediate answer. That's the first thing they say. And at that moment, without going any further, I suggest to you that the scripture tells us that such a person is not a Christian. That is not the first thing the Christian says about himself. The first thing the Christian says about himself is that he's ill. That he's diseased. That he's suffering from a terrible illness. There is a statement which puts it like this. There is no health in us. That's the first thing he says. Now, the Bible puts that in a different form. If you like it in the form of a doctrine, you can put it in this way. That the first characteristic of the Christian is that he has a consciousness of sin. That he is aware of his need of deliverance from sin. It's absolutely basic and fundamental. Any person who resents a doctrine of sin, it seems to me, cannot be a Christian at all. The kind of person who says, oh, well, of course, I admit that I'm not 100% sent, but, and then begins to defend himself or herself or to make excuses or to put up some sort of case or argument, is really just proclaiming that he or she is not a Christian. This is the language of the Christian, heal me, O Lord, because I am desperately ill. In me, that is to say, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Now, you see, it's, it's people like Jeremiah and the Apostle Paul who speak like that. These are not some hopeless drunkards or murderers or adulterers. They're, 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 this is a prophet of God and the other men was uh, brought up a Pharisee and was a, a very godly and religious man and gave his life in a sense as he thought to God and the worship of God. Yet that's what he says about himself. You see, it is the saints and the best people the world has ever known who looking at themselves say, I need thee every hour. Most gracious Lord, just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. Vile and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. Now that, I think you'll agree, is the language not only of the Scripture. Read your Psalms. 
Read again that 51st Psalm spoken by David. Look at the lives of all these men. Turn to your New Testament. You find the same language. Come down the centuries. Read your hymn book. Read the biographies of the saints. They're all saying the same thing. They're all conscious of this diseased condition, this need of healing, this need of salvation, and they've given up trying to excuse themselves or explain themselves and their actions and their lives. They admit it and they confess it. So that you see any resentment of this teaching, this doctrine, is obviously a very serious matter. Any feeling that we may harbor in our bosoms that somehow this is insulting teaching and that after all we're not quite as bad as that and after all what good one does surely does count and that morality after all can't be dismissed in that way and that surely God is a righteous and a just God must draw some distinction between a person who's always tried to do, live a good life and do good things and one who's given himself or herself to sin surely and indignation. Now, I say that such language is very significant. You see, it is the language of the Pharisees of the New Testament who hated the Lord Jesus Christ and who were most responsible for putting him to death. It is that hatred of this Son of God who tells us that he's come to seek and to save that which is lost and so lost that nothing can save it but him, to resent that, as the Pharisees did, is to proclaim, I say, that you're outside the Christian position. And therefore this is the most serious thing that we can ever realize. But the Christian, as I'm saying, is very conscious of this. He's conscious of sin as Sickness. Sin is a disease. Now that's a, a figure, a picture that is used very frequently in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and in the New. And of course it means something like this. That he realizes that uh, he hasn't true health in a spiritual sense. That he's not strong as he ought to be. The Christian is a man who has become conscious of the fact that there is something radically and essentially wrong with him. He's a man who's gone on living in the world and for a while or for years perhaps he may have followed the way of the world and things may have gone wrong but he has dismissed it. He's never taken it seriously. He's tried to explain it in terms of some other people or some circumstances or bad luck or accident or chance or something like that. He feels that he's essentially all right and that he really doesn't deserve a fate like this and that life has been rather cruel and unfair and unkind to him. That's how he's gone on. But now at last, he begins to realize that that's far too facile an explanation and that he really hasn't been facing himself. So he begins to spend a little time with himself. And he looks at himself. He examines himself in some sort of a spiritual mirror. And he begins to realize that he's ill, that he's diseased, and that I say there is something wrong within him. He now begins to see that he's guilty of things which are altogether wrong. 
Things that he used to explain away, he no longer explains away. He regards these actions as wrong, as selfish, self-centered, the result of lust and passion and uncontrolled inordinate desire. He, He calls a spade a spade, if you like, and he puts the right designations to things he's done. He uses the correct terminology. He says, yes, it's wrong, it is sinful, and I am guilty of such things. But he doesn't stop there. And to me it's this next step that is the most serious of all, perhaps. Because there are many people in the world who are prepared to admit that they sometimes do things that are wrong. They may even go so far as to admit that they are occasionally guilty of sins. Yes, but the vital question is this. Are you aware as to the cause of that? What is it that leads anybody to commit a single sin? Why are we guilty of any single sin, leave alone a number of sins? And it's there we begin to understand the language of this prophet Jeremiah. The Christian is a man who realizes that he is guilty of sins because there is sin in him. That it isn't that he is all right, but that occasionally does a wrong thing. He realizes that he is wrong, and therefore does wrong things. That the trouble is, not that the fountain itself was pure, but that some impurity has somehow got into the stream after it had left the fountain. He begins to realize that the pollution is in the fountain itself, in the source, in the life, in the center, in the heart. And there he becomes conscious of this state of sin, which is a disease. He realizes not only that he is not holy, and that he is not living the kind of life that the Son of God lived when he was here in this world, and doesn't, and doesn't live the kind of life that the saints, whom he can read of in the books, have lived when they were here in this world, His trouble, he realizes, is not only that he is not holy, but that he is positively evil. That there is a fountain of iniquity within him. He says, where do these thoughts come from? Where do these imaginations originate? Where do these desires come from? It's within me. It isn't outside me. Even when I'm alone and in the most perfect atmosphere, I find that evil is present with me. And these things are there. There's something within me that is rotten. I rebel against the good. I delight in evil. Why is it that I prefer to do wrong? Why do I get pleasure in doing that which is illicit? Why is it that stolen fruit has an unusual sweetness? Those are the questions he begins to ask himself. And in asking these questions, he's admitting that he's diseased. In me, that is to say, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Sin, my friends, is a disease which drags us down and paralyzes us. And it has horrible, horrid symptoms. Lust and desire and jealousy and envy and malice and hatred and spite and all these things. They're but symptoms of this horrible disease. 
You can't have symptoms without a disease. It's impossible. Symptoms are just expressions of a diseased condition. And this Christian is a man, I say, who doesn't merely stop at the symptoms. He tracks them down. He says, why has that symptom appeared? Where has it come from? What's the matter with me? Where has it originated? And he goes back to this evil heart that we've already been dealing with. This foulness in the very constitution. This canker in the very substance of one's being. Am I exaggerating? Is this just some psychological morbidity? Do you think that I'm libeling human nature? Do you think that I'm insulting you? My dear friend, be careful. I warn you in the name of God, be careful what you say. Because if those are your thoughts, you are simply announcing that you do not belong to the category that includes Jeremiah and the Apostle Paul and the greatest saints the world has ever seen. It is they who speak like that about themselves. Yes, and the Christian looks at it like this also. He says, I am suffering from pain. I'm in pain. I'm sometimes in agony. Why am I? Why am I troubled? Why am I perplexed? Why am I vexed? Why am I miserable? What's it all due to? You know that kind of turmoil of the soul when you feel that everything is wrong and you're beside yourself and impatient and you don't know what to do. You recognize those symptoms and again you do exactly the same thing and you say, well, why is this? And again, you see, you no longer say it's other people and so on. You say this again is nothing but another manifestation of this self-same disease. All unhappiness in life, all misery, all wretchedness, all failure, all frustration, it all comes back to this. It's entirely due to sin within. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. It's all there. Heal me, O Lord, for I am ill. There is no health in us. That's the first thing the Christian always confesses. He is aware of this state of sin. Thou desirest truth in the inward parts, he says to God, and he knows that in his inward parts there is no truth. Because he was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He realizes that he has inherited this old disease of original sin and original pollution. And that it is true of every person born into the life of this world. That's the first thing. Let me hurry to say a word about the second thing. The Christian is not only a man who realizes that he's ill and that he has need of healing. He's obviously a man who also realizes that he's utterly hopeless and helpless in the matter of healing himself. I'll go further. He realizes that the whole world cannot heal him. Why? Well, he cries out unto the Lord to do it. 
And you see, this is a tremendous confession. It's the end of a process. You show me a man on his knees praying, Heal me, O Lord. And I can tell you that man's life history. Yes, he's a man who's become aware of the problem. He's not just one of these giddy, light-hearted persons who lives on the social round or on the pleasures that are offered by this world. He can't do that. He's not content with forgetting his problems and his sorrows for a moment and trying to drown them. He says, no, no, that's running away from them, that's escapism. He's faced it and he's discovered there's a problem. Ah, yes, but that alone, you see, doesn't make us Christian. Because there are many serious-minded people in the world tonight who are not Christians. And they prove it in this way, that they're still quite confident that they can deal with the situation that they can tackle and solve the problem. I mustn't weary you nor keep you by giving you a list or a catalogue of the ways and the means and the methods that they employ. They're perfectly familiar to all of us. But there are thousands of very good moral people in the world tonight who really still believe that by mind and by thought and by reason and by logic and by willpower and a little organizing that their own problems can be solved and the problems of others. There are still people who put their faith in culture, education and the arts, social movements, organized efforts to improve the surroundings and the circumstances and to make life beautiful, physical fitness and health. They, they go in for all these things. God forbid that I should speak lightly about them. I'm not here to disparage them. I'm simply here to say that they're utterly misguided, that they're doomed to failure, and that they're proclaiming that they're not Christians. But they're well-intentioned and they're perfectly sincere. Let me grant them that a hundred percent. But what I do say about them is this, that they've never yet realized the true problem that is confronting them. They're not aware of the radical nature of this disease called sin. Otherwise they could never trust to their expedience. But there are, I say, large numbers of such people. The Christian is a man who's gone beyond all that. He's tried to reform himself. He's made his resolutions. He's often written it in a book and signed his signature to it. He said, I'm going to deal with this at last. Come what may. I am determined. And he takes up this and that. He takes up his moral resolution. He takes up his activities. He's going to do good. He's going to curb something else. And so he tries in this piecemeal fashion to deal with his essential problem. But he's tried it and tried it and he's more conscious of his failure at the end than he was at the beginning. And at long last, he realizes that this is a problem with which he is not competent to deal. At long last, he's ready to take his stand by the side of Augustus' top lady and say, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. 
Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? Oh, for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. It's a tremendous place to come to that. To come to the end of your tether. To come to a point at which you realize that you're really as a little child and that you're absolutely helpless. It's an awful demand the gospel makes, but it is its demand. That it doesn't matter how gifted I may be intellectually, that when I'm face to face with this question of my own life and my relationship to God and living a holy life and being fit to go to heaven, that I am as helpless and as hopeless as the most terrible sinner. It's the great stumbling block to men. It was the thing at which the Pharisees, as I say, stumbled. It was the thing at which the Greek philosophers stumbled. It was that why, that was why the cross of Christ was an offense to him. It was foolishness to him. He couldn't abide this idea that he's utterly condemned. But my dear friend, the cross of Christ is the greatest condemnation of us all that the world has ever known. Why is he there? There's only one answer. Because the whole of mankind had failed to deliver itself. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There is none, just no, not one. The whole world lieth guilty before God. All my righteousness is as filthy rags. My righteousness is dung and refuse and losses in Paul. That's the confession. Have you realized that you can't heal yourself? Have you given up taking spiritual aspirin? Merely trying to get rid of that headache spiritually. Have you faced the disease? And you got tired of just making yourself a little bit better for the time being. But then going back and realizing that the disease is still there. Haven't you come to see that you can never extirpate it? That do what you will, you can never get rid of this thing that's in the center of your being. Your whole nature being diseased. In me, that is to say, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. So how can I get it out? It means getting rid of myself entirely. The very fact that the Christian cries out unto the Lord is an admission and a confession that he realizes that he cannot do it himself. Have you become desperate? Have you become hopeless? Have you realized that you know the whole world can ever put yourself right? Heal me, O Lord. It is a request. But of course, I don't stop at that. I must go on to say this. It is also, therefore, an admission and a confession and a ready one. That he has realized that the Lord can do it. And that's the thing that Jeremiah emphasizes, isn't it? You notice how he puts it in a very positive way. He says... Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. I want real healing, says Jeremiah. 
I don't want a mere amelioration of my passing symptoms. I want healing. And I know, he says, that I can't heal myself, nor anybody else. They make me feel a little bit better for the time being. They drug me. They give me this placebo or something like that. And I feel a little bit better. But I want health. And he turns to the Lord and he says, If you heal me, I shall be healed. If you save me, I shall be saved. There'll be no question about it. You see his positive faith now. The Christian is not only a man who realizes he's suffering from a disease called sin, and that it is an incurable disease as far as he and all men are concerned. He believes he knows that God can cure him, and he has unshakable confidence in that salvation. Well, why? Well, in this way. The Christian, you see, is a man who has come to see and to believe and to accept God's way of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is that? Well, let me put it like this to you. Why is Jeremiah so confident that if God does it, it'll be done truly and thoroughly and lastingly and completely? Well, if I may venture to use the very illustration that the prophet uses, it's this. And I know of nothing that so commends itself to me and gives me such assurance. When I'm ill and a physician or a doctor visits me, the first thing I want to know about him is this. Can he make a true diagnosis? I'm not very interested as to how he should dress. I'm not a bit impressed by bedside manner. When I'm ill, I don't want a fashion plate. I want a man who understands diseases. I want a man who can see symptoms and use them and analyze them and trace them and relate them to a whole. I want diagnosis, an accurate diagnosis, a thorough diagnosis. And there is only one. I've been putting it to you already in another form. But you see, what condemns all your humanisms and idealisms and all your vaunted philosophies is this, that they've never understood the truth about men and the truth about sin. There is only one radical and complete and satisfactory explanation of the state of an individual or the state of the whole world tonight. It is the fall of men. It is sin which came in with Adam. And everything else is so superficial that it is of no value. And that is why you see the whole endeavor of the human race throughout the centuries to solve its problems has led to nothing. That is why the 20th century is as alarming in the dimensions of its problem tonight as any situation that's ever gone before. In spite of all our advances, in spite of all our knowledge, look at your modern world, look into your own heart. Why have they all failed? Because they won't recognize this. It's the diagnosis that's wrong. And the diagnosis is made plain in the Lord Jesus Christ. There you see men perfect. 
There you see one living his life as men in this world yet without sin. And it is as you look at him and then look at yourself and work out the contrast that you see the essence of the trouble. The diagnosis is simply this, that man is as he is, every one of us is as he is, because we are not in the right relationship to God. God made man perfect upright. He gave him an original righteousness and men could stand erect and speak to God. But he's fallen away from him. He's lost the face of God. He's become a fugitive and a wanderer. That's the cause of his trouble. And unless you start with that, you'll never arrive at healing. The diagnosis is to be found only in the Bible and in the Christian message. Sin and all its evil effects and the devil. But then, of course, we want not only accurate diagnosis, we want an ability to prescribe. We want a medicament with potency. We want a radical operation that can extirpate this canker and rid us of the fell disease. And then we want health and vigor and strength and power, convalescence and an assurance that we shall be held and protected. What a picture. And it's all there. The remedy I need is that which can bring me back to God. I don't want a little more knowledge. I don't want to be improved. I want the living God. My soul thirsteth. After thee, the living God. I want to get back to him. I want to get to the place which man originally occupied. And nothing else can satisfy me. I'm made for that. And I'm interested in no remedy except a remedy that can bring me back to God. And there's only one. And it's to be found on a hill called Calvary where I see something happening that brings me back to God, where reconciliation is made, where that which separates is removed. He took it upon himself and he bore it away as the scapegoat into the desert and the wilderness. The barrier is gone. The thing that separates us from God has been removed and only removed in the one who took our sins in his own body on the tree, in the one on whom God hath laid the iniquity of us all and dealt with it once and forever. There is no health apart from death. God is life and God is health. And I shall never be healthy until I'm reconciled to God. And it is Jesus Christ and him crucified alone that does it. And he's done it. And he's done it for me. And then I need, I say, new life. And he gives it me. In him is life. And he asks us to come to him if we are hungry, if we are thirsty, if we are tired. And he will give us life anew. He that drinketh of this water, he said to the woman of Samaria, pointing to the well, shall thirst again. But he that drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst.
but the water that I shall give him shall be in him as a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Life within. Life anew. We become partakers of the divine nature. We become new men, new creations. New life is in, infused into us. And the power of the Holy Ghost to increase my resistance to the germs and the infections that are still surrounding me in this evil world of time. The attack of the world, the flesh and the devil. How do I overcome it? Well, I am given this new life and vigor, this immunization, if you like, this transfusion of the life divine and the power that was resident in the Son of God himself. That is the message. So I am given life and power and protection and all my needs are supplied. Listen to Jeremiah elaborating it in verse 17. Be not a terror unto me. Thou art my hope in the day of evil. The one that never leaves us nor forsakes us. The health that cannot break down the work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. All I need in thee to find, yea, Lamb of God, I therefore come. Well, my friends, there it is. There is the confession. But obviously I must just mention this before I finish. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For thou art my prayer. That's the final way of telling whether a man is a Christian or not, and perhaps it is the most subtle test of all. Is he your prayer? Or do you want to take a little credit to yourself? Do you want to say that after all you do come into it and you are what you are because of what you've done and because you are what you want it to be? The Christian is a man who gives all the praise to the Lord. Who says, I am what I am. By the grace of God. Boasting is ended. Him that glorious, let him glory in the Lord. I am nothing, thou art all. Thou must save, and thou alone. The Christian is a man, I say, who gives all the credit and all the praise. And all the glory to him who alone deserves it. God forbid that I should should make my boast. Save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, by whom I am crucified unto the world, and the world unto me. In the cross of Christ I glory. Are you a sinner saved alone by the grace of God? Do you attribute to him all praise and honor and glory? Is he your praise? That's the Christian confession.
Are you a Christian? Had you ever realized the terrible disease you're suffering from? Had you ever realized how hopeless and helpless you are? Had you realized what God in Christ has done and which alone can heal you? And is it your innermost heartfelt desire this evening to praise him and to live to his glory? Let every man examine himself but let us realize as we do so that if that is not our confession, we are outside the life of God. And if we die in that condition, we will remain in that condition throughout eternity without a hope in endless misery and wretchedness in that horrible, eternal death of sin. May the Lord have mercy upon us.